Good morning, and welcome to A Chat in the Garden with Monique A.J. Smith, where significance blooms right here in athletics and sports on Survival Radio Network. Well, welcome to a Friday, a special edition of A Chat in the Garden. And I just want to take a moment to send out a prayer uh, to Clark Garrison, who is the CEO of Survival Radio Network, which is what you're listening on, and our engineer for the last six years. And um, I just want to send him uh, good wishes, love him dearly, and we miss you, and get well soon. And that being said, I want to thank so much Christina Lockley, uh, she, she is stepping in as an engineer for this special Friday because, actually, y'all, I am booked to October. And so uh, I didn't want to miss this special uh, podcast because we have so many people to send in questions for our guest today. So thank you so much for, for being here with us and, and getting us back on the air. I am going to go swiftly through my announcements because, like I said, we have lots of questions, lots of questions. So um, I do want to just, again, really press upon you to get this great resource called Surviving the Lights, a professional athlete's playbook to avoid the curse by Tawana Smith. You know, if the NFL finds that resource a great gift to give uh, to the football participants in the Celebration Bowl, then you should too. Uh, and, and mind you, she's one of our media partners. So you get a chance to get a resource and be able to support someone who supports us to be on the air every week. And how do you do that? It's on Amazon on three different formats. First, it is a paperback. Then it's a um, ebook, and then guess what? Which I'm really pushing because I have been enjoying over the holiday listening to my audiobooks. So get your book today. Uh, I'm saying you should get it for your student athletes, but I'm saying you need to get it as well because it's, it's a good resource. And you know, you could just put it in your office, and if you if you if you're okay, buy several in your office and let them pick it up and maybe turn it back in. But if you're like me, you're going to have student athletes come to you and ask you about your advice for things. And, you know, if you've never had a student athlete to go pro and you really don't know what to expect, this is the the resource to give to them and, and for you to get um, up to speed. Um Enjoy it immensely, and thank you, uh, Tawana. And thank you uh, to Jay Shell for bringing her to the NFL. Uh, that's, hey, that's the kind of network we have here in the garden, and we keep growing together. Now, you all, I enjoyed the black student-athlete at University of Texas, Austin, last week immensely, okay? And I, I, I think I didn't even think I took a break to go to the bathroom. I didn't want to miss anything, anything. Um, and so uh, great presentations, great eye-opening opportunities, and I was so glad to see so many uh, Chattanooga Garden members there. Uh, but I do 
and I and I did something. I mean, honestly, you can watch the whole thing. It's three days, eight hours straight. Uh, it's on YouTube on the Black Student Athlete Summit, and all the previous years are too. So you can watch it all the way through. But I want to say that I did um, record one of the f- most phenomenal um, professionals in the business. And I am so glad to say that she's a member of the Garden. And, again, I, you heard me say every time I hear her speak, I just I just start to cry like I'm in church. Because she's when I tell you she's telling the truth, and she puts it out there, but it's just the way she puts it out there. It's so, um, it's like listening to Aretha Franklin and uh, Erica Badu and Jill Scott. You know, people put words to what you have experienced, but put it in a research way that people can receive it to change their actions. That's Dr. Alinka Carter Van Zink, okay? And what really gets me really excited is that she is a trailblazer for us as she is walking uh, this journey. And so if you're connected with her, just send her a thank you because, you know, being a trailblazer is not easy. Being a pioneer is not easy because usually you in the pack and, you know, when you walk in front of things, you get hit with stuff, bang, 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 and you don't have any cover. So I just want to say thank you to her because when she brings these these these, uh, these things to her attention, you know, we don't know what kind of feedback she gets. So let us fill the, the, the feedback with good wishes and thank you because guess what? You know, I, I know many of you heard of Harry Edwards. You know, he was a consultant. Um, for the three athletes in 1968, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and, uh, yeah, he also helped Kaepernick. But she is now uh, the director of the center, um, and I'm going to mess up the name of it. So right now I'm just going to say she's at St. Jose State University while I make sure I get the exact name of it. but she's got two roles, director of um, African-American history and uh, the social justice piece. I believe that the actual name is um, in the book here. Um, but just the fact that all of the, you heard that the, the, the two icons I just mentioned or experiences, and they were led by a man. So now the person who's over social justice is a woman. Can y'all uh, give me some clicks? You know, something about that is, is miraculous for me. So I did share with you all the video that she presented with two other colleagues, uh, Dr. Hamilton and soon-to-be Dr. Sales. Uh, they did a presentation, Disrespected, Unprotected, and Neglected, discussing the mental health of black women in intercollegiate athletics. It was phenomenal. So, you know, just give me a shout-out um, in the group underneath the video. Go find it. You can uh, type her name in within the search for Van Zink, and then you can probably find it on the top. Good, good, great resources, Okay. Um, I also want to give a shout-out to Eric Smith. 
Um, he says you got to know to get the dough. And not just not for you all. Uh, that, would, that would be uh, for your student-athletes. I'm talking about the financial literacy coach. Um, he would really like you to make it a priority on your list to teach your college students the money skills and beyond. So uh, he is a media partner also of a chat in the garden, and he was at the Black Student Athlete Summit and just got a chance to bond just for a moment and the reception. And you know me, I introduced him to everybody that I knew there, and uh, I know you all, and I really want you to connect with him as well. So his number is 770-527-4380. Get him on your campus this semester. Again, 770-527-4380. And uh, his email address is eric, E-R-I-C, at thefinancialliteracycoach.com. Now, that just brings me back to my mind really fast um, about the Advanced Academy. Uh, we're having our next live session this Sunday, this Sunday at 9 o'clock. And I am really, really excited about this. Um, we have been working from the book, Don't Leave Money on the Table, Negotiating Strategies for Women Leaders in Male-Dominated Industries. So would you say that would include us? I would think so. So uh, this is our last session on the book, and guess what? The author is going to join us. Jacqueline Tewilly, uh is going to join us, and we're going to talk about um, her book and how she came with that and her organization. Her organization is uh, Zero Gap, Zero Gap. And she really does uh, work to help you, uh, how do you frame uh, your negotiations uh, to not leave money on the table. We really have enjoyed uh, deep diving into the book, and I did break it down into three segments. And I will be very honest with you. Um, I noticed um, that the relationship between money and uh, our members uh, in the Vance Academy were a little shaky. And uh, I don't know many of you know, I'm 52 years old and I've been in the workplace for 30 years. And uh, like I was mentioning before, being a pioneer, um, there are things that I agreed to that didn't even know that I was agreeing to. And, uh, and, and mind you, bless her heart, Lord rest in peace, uh, the person that my, my first job was a female. And she was just repeating what was repeated to her. And I would just give you just a small example. Um, I was straight out of school, 22 years old, uh, was a sports information director, and uh, but I was doing a lot more than what my title included. And I believe it was close to one year or so. And uh, she made a comment that, and this is not the first time I heard this. It was my first time then hearing it. She said that I could not make more than my colleague because he uh, had a family, and I did not. Now, again, that was said because that was what was said to her. That was the norm. Um, that was just the norm. 
you know, uh, your your salary is based on your position in your family. And so if you're single. But you all know what? It's 2020. And do you realize that even if I get a salary of $10,000 and a male person gets a salary of $10,000, that I will, my take-home pay will still be less? You know what? You know why? Because my insurance as a female is more than a man. Did y'all realize that? So those are the kind of things that you need to be aware of and talk about uh, in a safe setting. So after this month when we talk with the expert negotiator, I am deep diving into a book about money, uh, The Lactate Factor, David Bach. And this is one of his latest books, Why You Don't Have to Be Rich to Live Rich. So, again, i got 30 years' of experience of how I, how I have come to grips with some of those ideas. And mind you, when she said it to me, it kind of hit me kind of a bit, but I didn't, I didn't push back or protest, you know. I mean, I said, oh, okay. Um, and then in my mind, what I did, I, I, I immediately signed up to go get my master's. That was my strategy to deal with it, not necessarily to fight that straight on. So I, you know, fought to get my master's. And at the time, I was on a 10-month contract, so I fought for a 12-month contract. So there's still the concept of control what you can control, so that's what I did. Um, but mind you, you see, I never forgot it, and uh, I bring it to people's attention. And, no, you can't do that anymore. Uh, that is discrimination straight up. But, you know, the question is, why is there not discrimination about the insurance? Makes you go, hmm, like I'll see me in the hall. But the latte factor, we will be jumping into that in February. If you want to join us to get this type of education, um, just email me at Monique at Monique A.J. Smith at info. Again, Monique A.J. Smith at info. Or you can just message me on uh, Facebook, and I will send you the link. You don't want to miss it. And when you sign up immediately, you get the previous replays of this book and all of the 20-plus. So you don't want to miss it. It is like education if no other, because guess what? We are going to advance together, together. So uh, using my experiences is how I teach, to be honest with you. And uh, some of those experiences may be lived by me, or some of those experiences are something that I've read. But uh, And I can add to my bucket list uh, some of those experiences are things that I have written about. So, yes, I am now an author. It's January. Um, the books, um, we, we, I, can, I can actually order the books, but I need to, uh, I think the books will be hitting like February, March, uh, because I got to, I had to change the cover. I said, now, you know, you got to have my name on the cover because nobody's going to buy the book unless you see my name on the cover. So I had to get that straight. So, but guess what? We're going to do a book tour. Now, when you hear about my book, you're going to say, like, hmm, oh, that's interesting. Didn't think about that. Because, again, I'm sharing my experiences to help you navigate to get to your destination. And so I'm going to travel with somebody who can actually help you if you can, if, if, if my story resonates with you. And I talk about having a counselor, which kind of ties back to what Dr. Van Zinker was said on her presentation. 
um, you know, we mental health is a big story right now. But the the story is about the student athlete. But I'm telling you, the pressures of athletics lends itself that you got to understand that you got to have a place to go. You know, as the balloon uh, blows up, you know, there's a way to deflate instead of being popped. And how do you do that? And there's some, uh, there are some great tools out there. And most of the time, I'll be honest with you, when I first started having these issues, I could read myself away and come up with the strategies. But I will tell you, it had a, still a destructive um, result without talking to a, a professional. And I talk about that, and I, I just don't want anybody else to go through that. Because, again, I'm talking about advancement. I'm talking about growing. And I know, I know this for a fact, even for all the clients I talk to. You cannot get better if you are bitter. You cannot get better if you are better. And, uh, again, I walked this I walked this trail. And if you can't be corrected, that's better. You're not trying to get better. And th- therefore, you're not going to advance. And there, so, uh, again, I sing this song in my class uh, with my students. Uh, I said, because your behavior... Your ability to accept information and grow from it instead of showing it all in your face, it's going to hinder your advancement. Because people, honestly, I used to hate to say it, but this is true. People hire smiling faces. Now, I know you say, I want to be real. I'm going to be authentic. You can be all of that, but you still got to be professional. But most importantly, you got to understand that you, how you are responding, because you might even know that you were doing that. So I'm not really the one to say that. Oh, I might be able to say that, but the person to help you correct that is a psychologist. All right. So I do have someone that's going to travel with me on my on my book tours. So I'm going to talk about a little bit my about the book, about my experiences. We're going to talk about it, and hey. Dr. Mari Alexander, who is the bomb.com. She actually sponsored um, the Black Student Summit. She also sponsored our reception at NACTA in June. And she's going to sponsor the book tour. So if you would like for us to stop at your city, because usually when I, when I go places, I'll have at least five people that, that are in a city or at an event, and we all bond. And I'm telling you, some great things come from the connecting events that I have. So if you want to say you want to sponsor a connecting event or you want to uh, sponsor the book tour, that's great. And all I'm just saying is to find me a location, tell me you want to come there, and there's no financial obligation except for about the book maybe. So, again, if that's something you're interested in, Hit me up, Monique AJ Smith at seasonempowerment.info. And my last announcement uh, is Michelle McKinney. Um, and we, we, you know, this is the this is the time of year when our folks are scrambling trying to talk about their internships or their jobs. And our life skills folks are kind of bogged down, okay. And so about doing programming, but maybe not individual work with uh, resumes and 
uh, mock interviews and those kind of things. So Michelle McKinney has a virtual way of assisting you in this area of assisting your student-athletes. Give her a call at 919-271-8351. Her company is called Third Degrees Solutions. Um, she's been working with the general population with assisting them with that, those paths. But she contacted me and said, why are there any student-athletes in there? I said, well, the general population um, time constraints Causes time constraints for student athletes to participate, so that's why athletics has a entity by itself. Um, but even with that, how can they cover all the other needs? I just said we we big on mental health, and so she created Excel after career services for student athletes. So she can do uh, career fairs, opportunity to resume critique, mock interviews, third degree offers to create this for your athletic department virtually. Contact Michelle McKinney, 919-271-8351. So that concludes all of my shout-outs and messages for today. So so that I will not be uh, cut any of the answers off for my guest today, I'm going to take a really a short break right here in the chat in the garden um, with Monique A.J. Smith and on Survivor Radio Network. And when we return, uh, we're going to meet our guest of the hour. And I'm going to roll with all of your questions because I have to be honest, this is, this is uh, the most questions I've ever had for any guest. And so I, know I don't want to cut off the flow um, until... Our time is up, so we're going to be we'll be returning right back. Hi, are you frustrated at work? Do you want to know how to position yourself for promotion? Then Queen's Moves is the workshop for you. Why? Because as women, we need to know our value, be confident in our options, and seize opportunities when they come along, just like a well-played queen in the game of chess. My name is Michelle Larkin of Yumi Connections. And I have developed this online workshop to teach you how to think strategically, develop a personal strategy, build confidence, and create professional momentum. I encourage you to visit queensmoves.net for more details and more information about signing up and registering. This course will equip and inspire you to move like the queen that you are. Classes start November 1st. Well, welcome back. I am your host, Monique A.J. Smith. Okay, so let's see. Let us bring our guest on. Let me go find my little... Okay, yes. So today's guest, we met... We will meet this phenomenal woman, um, an athletic mental health space. Um, She's at LSU... So let us just get the congratulations out right now. National champion LSU, um, out helping you those cheers. 
And uh, But honestly, I've never met her, so I'm really excited about meeting her. But what really made me, uh, actually, you know, I was kind of trolling her, trying to find her, because I think it was last spring, she spoke somewhere, and everybody was talking about this lady. I said, I must get her on the podcast. Must, must, must. And so I tracked her down, and as you can see, that was the spring, and this is the first time I could get her on. Uh, she is a very, very well sought after speaker, um, and I'm gonna let her tell her story. But I am really delighted to have her, have her here, uh, Dr. Lakeithia uh, Poole of LSU. Welcome to the garden. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? You hear your kids? Yes. Outstanding, outstanding. <laughs> well, again, congratulations on being the national champions for collegiate football. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I got a couple more teams. I'm looking for some more. So now that we got one, I'm I'm hungry for it. So I'm I'm looking for some other teams this season to do the same. But thank you so much. Well, winning is contagious. So. <laughs> So let's just jump right on in um, your journey from college to your current position. Yeah, sure. So um, I am a New Orleans, Louisiana native, and uh, one of the things that I recall specifically about growing up um, in New Orleans is it was such a diverse place. Um, I was one of those kids that my mom let me do everything. So anything I wanted to try, music, um, the arts, sports, I did it all. Um, And so when it was time to consider college, I think I was probably, and this is probably early, earlier than most people are thinking about college, but I was in about the seventh or eighth grade, and I went on a class trip, um, and I won a Florida State basketball in like a, a little game. Um, and so I, from that moment, became uh, semi-obsessed with Florida State. And uh, when it was time to think about college around junior year of high school, I started doing my research and Um, really discovered that psychology was something I wanted to do. I didn't know a ton about it, Um, particularly, you know, in communities of color. We don't talk as much about mental health and psychology in that way, or at least we didn't. We do now much more, which is awesome. Um, And so I just kind of, like, went with that. And so it's it's always funny when I have to tell the story of, like, the beginnings of my educational journey. There's not this, like, I don't know, phenomenal um, connection to FSU. I don't have any family in Tallahassee, um, but – Literally, when I was in seventh grade, won a basketball, and it, I felt like it was fate. And so, um, I um, my senior year of high school um, was the year Hurricane Katrina happened in New Orleans, and uh, my family we lost everything, and so we mm-hmm. started completely over. I was at a new school in my senior year, um, and I just remember the feeling um, of kind of isolation, but also. Um, resilience that had to happen in order for us to get through that. And so more than ever um, is when I think I really understood what it meant to become sort of mentally tough and have to understand what it means um, to bounce back. And so, again, I had all these experiences about being in band and doing sport, and you would think you would pick up those skills along the way, and I think I did, but um, little did I know a hurricane would actually kind of put that to the test. And so um, at that point in time, not only did my 
my prior plan to attend FSU makes sense, but it made probably even more sense because I had to have a fresh start anyway once that um, school year was over. So uh, I got through senior year. Um, my school that spring semester did open back up my high school, so I got to graduate with some of my peers, and then I headed off to Tallahassee. Um, and loved that experience. I majored in psychology there, and then I had a minor in family studies and sociology. And um, I loved everything about that experience there. I got so many great research experiences in psychology and really was able to then hone my thoughts on becoming um, a mental health clinician. And so um, I've never really let go of that. I know I have students now who always, you know, they're switching majors every semester, and that just was never me. Uh, once I knew, I knew. Um, and so it, it just has evolved into, you know, this journey. And so from there, I went, um, I came back home to Louisiana and got my master's um, at LSU um, in clinical mental health. So that's where um, I got, you know, licensed and um, really, really got my experience and feet wet in the collegiate setting. So my clinical internships have all been either in, like, college counseling settings, career centers, um, and then some community spaces as well, particularly around serving students of color and people of color um, and women. Um, and so from there, I just knew that that was where I belonged, and, and the college setting was just for me. Um, and during that time of getting my license and kind of just working in the higher ed, um, I was introduced more so to working with athletes, particularly athletes of color, and mm -hmm. understanding some of the intersectionality that happens uh, between not only being a person of color and the identities that come with that, but also being an athlete, um, particularly at a D1 SEC school. And so being able to understand um, some of the pressures that come with that, but also a lot of the um, misperceptions that are out there about that particular group. And so um, I kind of just stuck with working in the college setting and have never, never really let go. Um, and then during that time, decided I wanted to go back and get a PhD because I wanted to get back in the classroom and create spaces for um, people who look like me to be able to understand that they too could work in this field, um, particularly with working in the college setting and with student athletes. And it, that just wasn't an option for me at the time. I sort of stumbled into it through the students that walked through my door um, versus now I would love to be able to create more opportunities and spaces um, for students who are gaining their master's and their clinicians in training um, to really be able to know that they have it as an option from here. So that is how I ended up here. I'm in my fourth uh, season, as we like to call it, here in athletics at LSU. And so um, I've loved every second of it. And, of course, winning a national championship on Monday helps make the week better. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're going to jump right on in. Yeah. Uh, let me ask this question. So how long have you been at LSU now? So I've been at LSU since 2010. Actually, this month, January, um, made my 10th year here um, between, like I said, working in a number of different departments, but this is my fourth year in athletics. Okay. Um, so here we go. Mm -hmm. Ashley Bowles, she's one of my leadership retreat alumni. She's a coordinator of student development at University of Memphis. She said, uh, um, you earn your Ph.D. in counseling education and supervision. Is that your path you would suggest for people who want to be where you are now? If not, what would you suggest? And then she has a second question, but I'll let you answer that one first. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so I think that it was the right path for me um, in understanding that if you are someone in particular who is in the mental health field and you're interested in being licensed as, you know, a licensed professional counselor or a clinical mental health um, person, I think being able to know that if you have the desire to go back to get a PhD, because that's really what, um, in my opinion, getting a PhD is a perseverance game. It's not necessarily about um, how smart you need to be. It's really about you wanting to get back into the classroom because you want to be able to be an influencer of your field. And so I, um, myself, as a director of an area here, um, have chosen, I didn't hire folks who have PhDs. I wanted to hire people who were great clinicians, um, and that can happen at the master's level. So it really is about a personal choice, I think, of whether or not you desire to go back and seek um, a PhD because you maybe want to get back in the classroom or you want to be involved in research, um, but you definitely don't need the PhD per se um, in order to work in this field. Does it, you know, open up a few doors maybe or people have a different level of respect, particularly when it comes to being a woman and a woman of color um, in the boardroom in the athletics field? Absolutely. Um, but is it necessary or, like, will you not find a job if you don't have a PhD? I don't think that's true. I think if you are a great clinician and you promote yourself in that way and you do good work, um, you will be fine. So I, I think you can get a PhD in anything that you want, but um, you have to want to have it and feel like it's going to benefit your long-term career goals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Her second question, what type of work do you do with injured athletes? What are your thoughts on groups for injured athletes? We actually do groups for injured athletes. Um, okay. Particularly knowing that it's a it's a weird space to be in, you know, so you – uh, maybe start a season and you're ready to go, maybe you're even starting and, and something happens. And being able to recognize that because for athletes their identity is so tied um, to their daily routines and the significance of what they maybe mean to their team and their teammates, it can be really hard when then you're forced to sit on the sidelines or maybe not travel with the team for a weekend. And so for the first time you're sitting at home on a Saturday night and that doesn't really happen. And so just hmm. being able um, to offer support for us that's through groups and obviously individual therapy as well um, to really just help them understand, you know, the transition and the mindset that you sort of have to have in order to get through maybe your rehab process if that's mm -hmm. possible. Um, but sometimes there are career-ending injuries, and that really takes um, a lot of intentionality clinically um, of how you're going to choose to work with somebody um, who really is transitioning from maybe an identity that they've held on for so long um, and helping them understand that they will always be an athlete, but what that looks like looks very different and how they can influence um, the folks that they always probably intended to by being an athlete in the first place doesn't change. It just changes what it looks like. And so, um, yeah, we do groups. We do individual sessions. We create um, opportunities to do presentations around what to kind of do when that happens. Um, and then, of course, in the work that we do every day, we get to be at most competitions, um, and so we're there usually the moment when something happens and able to kind of console and even work with family sometimes to help get mm. through um, those initial moments after an injury might happen. This is so good. <laughs> I love okay. talking about this. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, here's another one. Camelia Lanier, Director of Academic Support and Football at Campbell University. What made you open up your own private practice? Mm, that's a good question. Um, 
I wanted to be able to have a space that was mine and that I could particularly serve um, the people that I think in a, in a bigger picture that I was called to serve, which is, again, folks of color um, and women. And so um, not that I don't get to do that in my role um, at the university, but it's nice to have ownership in something that is mine mm-hmm. and to be able to create a vision around mental health um, that looks exactly how I imagined when I was sitting in the classroom, you know, working on my master's. And so um, I really just wanted to do something that I knew would have an impact on the community that I live in. So I live, I'm from Louisiana. I live in Baton Rouge. Um, one day I hope to have actually a second location in New Orleans back home. And so I think just being able to have something that I could create a vision for around mental health because who better to do that for um, folks of color than somebody who's a part of that community. And so, again, not that I don't get to work with those folks um, at the university setting, but it's something that is mine, and I think it's ownership is just important as a woman as well. And so just being able to kind of do that was a dream of mine. And um, in August of this year, we'll have been open for five years. So I'm pretty excited oh, about wow. that. Too. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So what uh, – was that always your goal? This is a continuation with Lanier's question. I think it was always in the back of my mind, but, again, when we're in our educational programs, it's not always told to us that we can do that. And so had it not been for mentors and me kind of watching other women do their thing and, and open practices mm-hmm. and, you know, go back and get PhDs like we talked about earlier, I don't know that I would have known all of the opportunities that were available to me as a person of color and a woman in mental health um, in general because, again, we're just we're like unicorns a little bit. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see um, how that shaped so much of, like, what my dreams turned into because I saw other women doing things and wanted to figure out, well, how can I do that too and, you know, make them proud and take it to another level. So, I don't know that always, but um, definitely seeing uh, women in, in certain roles made me feel like, okay, I need to be thinking, you know, deeper. What's the next mm-hmm. step? So uh, her second set of questions, now mm-hmm. that mental health is a topic of discussion, what age does do you feel we need to introduce it to children? And if mental health was introduced in the school system, do you think it would lower the rate of school shootings? Ooh, those are both good questions. Um, the first one, I, I think um, you can start talking with children about, you know, quote-unquote mental health um, as early as they're able to start talking and their cognitive development is happening, right? And so mm-hmm. it's not that you have to use the word, you know, mental health and therapy with a two-year-old, but you can ask them to be able to help you ex- help them express their feelings. Um, Mm -hmm. to really have an understanding of increasing their emotional vocabulary, like I Mm -hmm. feel this when you do Mm -hmm. this, Um, and being able to sort of help them understand that it's okay to express that. And I think that that's something, again, when we start talking about particular communities, um, we just we didn't know to do that. And so now Mm -hmm. um, we have created space, since mental health is a much more popular topic um, or a buzzword right now, you know, I think it's okay as soon as, um, a child has started to develop some of those cognitive skills and, and vocabulary around being able to express what makes them upset, what makes them happy, what makes mm-hmm. them smile. Um, and there are great tools out there now to even foster those conversations for parents um, and teachers maybe who, you know, they, they, don't, they didn't grow up like that, so they don't know what to ask or how to ask. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think I, I don't know that there's a, um, 
too early of an age that you could you could start introducing those concepts to kids. Yeah, to get them to verbalize what they feel, let them exactly to actually put words to it. And because that's usually, if you don't put words to it, it's like 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 the balloon I was mentioning. It's gonna come out when you're not uh, ready for it to come out, and it becomes a big mess. That's right. It's explosive. That's right. And so that yeah. I guess is just, that's the second question, right? Like she asked about the school shootings. Um, yes. I I think that you know we have a whole other conversation about like guns and all that and access mm-hmm. to those. That's separate. But I think being able um, to understand, similar to her last question, you know, if we um, gave children the opportunity to be able to understand how to express their emotions in a more adaptive way versus maladaptive Mm -hmm. ways or when conflicts happen. You know, a lot of school shootings sometimes happen around bullying and some other things that we really, um, we we shy away from talking about. And so I think, again, if we create opportunities and spaces um, in order to be able to foster conversations and um, emotional discussions for kids, it becomes a little bit easier uh, for them to be able to express themselves. And then, of course, um, informing parents and educating parents. And so a lot of my friends are great school counselors, and they do really great work helping parents understand how to, like, notice signs and symptoms mm-hmm. of something going on with your kids. And so mm-hmm. um, I do think now that, it's you know, mental health is much more out there and in our face, um, we will hopefully start to see some changes around some of these issues um, where we can catch some some, you know, violent incidences before they happen or at least be more aware. And I don't mean to simplify it, but just to be able to say hurt people hurt other people. That's right. That's right. And so the bully must, something must be happening to them to want to give back. And mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm 52, and I have a best friend who was bullied when we were kids because she was she looked like a teenager when we were still kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's had a chip on her shoulder ever since we were like ten, yeah. you know. And uh, but she, you know, but but here's a, here's the issue: it becomes your personality. Uh huh. And that's just me, you know, because you've been like that for so long. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when you depack that, and this yeah. is when you talk to somebody. You know, it, it it's not being funny, like, talk about your childhood, but that's when the first develop, your mm-hmm. your first shell. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's where you learn all of your initial lessons and in how you interact with people or how you think people perceive you as, mm-hmm. as a child and how you're treated, for sure. And mind you, I don't even think I have a, I think I, I took, like, when I got my master's one psychology class, but this just living right here. And, and, and I have <laughs> experienced going to counseling as well. That's right. You know what I mean? To be able to say mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the reason why I keep saying is because depression and issues look different for high achievers. So, uh, you know, yes, you can be depressed and don't realize it, but if you stay at the office all day and don't have any 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 other outlets, that's a sign of something. And mm-hmm. not just being hard work. Yeah. And... I'm just, and it's funny because my next get, my next question comes from a person who actually did a webinar in the Chattanooga Garden about uh, depression for the high achievers. She actually broke it down for us about, at least about four years ago, Dr. Stephanie Coakley. She's a social, 
Senior Associate AD of Mental Health and Wellness Performance at Temple. Her question is, what are some of the mental health challenges that we would be surprised that student-athletes face, and how is decision made when a student-athlete has to step away from their sport for mental health reasons? That's a great question. I know Dr. Stephanie, she's awesome. Um, You know, I think being able to kind of just what you were talking about, this idea of understanding that being high-achieving um, in anything, so whether that's academics or like we're talking about with our athletes in sport, um, it adds a different layer of pressure that most people don't understand. Most people assume like, oh, well, they're playing the sport that they love. They must be having a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in most cases, yeah, they enjoy it, but it comes with so many other um, time obligations that they have and things that really don't allow them always to sort of shed uh, the identity of being an athlete at all times. In most cases, um, when I'm talking with student athletes, the thing that they want most is to just feel like a regular student for a day or a regular person for a day. Um, and, of course, you know, the bigger the program or the bigger the conference maybe somebody is in, um, you know, they're driving down the street here in Baton Rouge and their face is on a billboard. And, like, mm-hmm. that's years for, for a 19-year-old <laughs> or 18-year-old um, to have to deal with. And so um, you have those sort of things. And then because of the age group that they're in, that 18 to 25 age group, they're going through so many changes um, cognitively and emotionally and mentally that it's really difficult to keep up with what's happening day-to-day with sometimes their families. A lot of them, you know, they're maybe the first still to go to college. So these are the things that most of our college students in general are facing. You might be first-generation college student. You might be sending money back home to family. You might also, even though you're technically not supposed to have a part-time job because you're trying to figure out something Um, you know, to support yourself in addition to that. And that's a whole other conversation about paying student athletes and that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. I think just being able to understand that the pressures build. um, Mm -hmm. And in most cases, you have, again, this age group that is more prone to mental health issues um, than other groups in the first place, just based on their age. And then on top of that, you add the pressures of sport and collegiate sport participation. And so, Uh, What typically happens for us when we get a student athlete that has to step away from their sport for mental health reasons, um, it's usually really hard for them. Um, They have a hard time between choosing wanting to care for themselves uh, because they know maybe something's not right, they're maybe not performing as well as they typically would be, but at the same time, it's such a huge part of who they feel like they are. And so for us, we usually have to go through, you know, a process of that person, you know, being in treatment with us for a little bit and really kind of exploring what's going on um, in order to figure out, you know, taking a break is necessary. And then it's our job as clinicians um, to advocate for them with their coaches and trainers and those folks who maybe don't have the full understanding of, like, why does this person need a break um, right now in the middle of our season or before preseason. And so, um, there's there's a process for sure, but the, the goal is to make sure that they feel supported and that they feel heard and that they're able to create um, for them an image that makes the most sense of what it means to take the next steps to being well um, and to being mentally healthy. So it's, it's never an easy decision, though, and, you know, coaches can be scary, you know, and administrators can be scary to have to face to tell them this kid's not playing. Um, and so it, it's a process. Well, I've got like three more questions, and I got like ten minutes. So here we go. Kenneth Miles, Executive Senior Associate AD, University of Michigan. 
What trends do you anticipate within the next five years and within the next ten? And uh, is there, oh, yeah, he has another question. And is there a difference between genders, racial, or, or ethnic? Yeah, I think I can make this one quick and easy. So I think the trend for the five and ten years will be that we will now see mental health take more space um, more positive space in um, many of our sports settings. So we're seeing now where the NFL, the NBA are all hiring um, clinicians to come on and be a part of their staff, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you also now are seeing um, the NCAA at the start um, of last school year, or this past fall, I guess, um, you know, they too are, you know, requiring universities to have some sort of mental health uh, resource for their student-athletes available. So I think that's just going to grow and get, you know, easier and better. Um, which is awesome. And then the second part of his question, um, there's a difference in sort of, I think, help-seeking behaviors between uh, male and female athletes. So, you know, women tend to be a little bit more open to going and having discussions around um, how they're feeling. Um, and, again, that's just like we talked about earlier, how maybe we're raised to be a little bit more expressive around our emotions. Um, and mm-hmm. men take a little bit longer to warm up. Um, and then same thing, culturally, racially, ethnically, um, you know, communities of color for a long time uh, were not able to trust medical professionals just based on historical context. And so um, now we're seeing a transition because you're seeing more people of color working in roles like mine uh, where they at least are now intrigued enough to come mm-hmm. one time and then it's my job to make them feel comfortable and make them want to come back. So um, that's, a, I guess, a trend and also a difference that you see, um, you know, between racial groups uh, takes them a little bit longer sometimes, but once they're in and they buy in, they're in. Christine Hampton-Jackson, Associate AD, Executive Director of Athletes, uh, Mississippi State University. What advice would you give to your younger self that may be helpful to other young women? I think just go for it. Like I talked about earlier, you know, I moved to a new city at 18. I didn't know a soul there, um, but I knew what I felt like I knew what my purpose was, or at least I was I was walking in it and learning what it was. And I think you just have to go for it and sort of be fearless. And it can be difficult as a woman, um, and then more so as a woman of color sometimes, to feel like you belong um, and that imposter syndrome kicks in. But I think just go for it. And so um, I, I think I would tell myself to really do the exact same thing, surround myself with other women doing false things, and, and just go for it. Your buddy. Carol Ann Walker, Senior Associate <laughs> Director, uh, the Cox Center for Student Athletes. Uh, Want to talk about your transition from working with regular student populations to student athletes? What are the similarities and differences? And then she, our other question: um, treating student athletes for sports performance issues versus real mental issues, if one has an impact on the other. Yeah, um, this is my buddy. Um, So I think being able to understand that for the most part when you're talking about collegiate student-athletes, you have to consider that there are going to be so many more similarities to them as regular college students because of their age, like I mentioned earlier, than normal. And so for me, the transition really wasn't that difficult as far as, like, my clinical work with this Mm -hmm. age group or with this population. Um, For me, as a, a, a woman in sport, it was like getting through the red tape and the politics of working in athletics and me mm-hmm. learning what I could do and what I couldn't do or, you know, how to push my way into a seat at the table to advocate for these students um, based on lack of understanding that maybe administrators sometimes don't have 
um, in, in, in what these students are going through. So um, the transition as far as, like, the clinical part of it was easy. I felt like it really wasn't a transition. I just moved to a different side of campus. But um, the, the, the part for me as an as a employee and, and as a practitioner, um, that, that, was, that was different um, and still is sometimes. Um, the things that you hear and see um, administratively is, is difficult. Um, and then the sports performance and mental health issues, I definitely think that those um, are interconnected. I do think that one can influence the other. So you could be a student athlete that typically has never had any mental health concerns, but then you get to college, you're competing at a different level, the pressure is built up and now you are struggling. And so now you, for the first time, are experiencing what anxiety feels like or what depression may feel like, and that can be really difficult. Um, and then obviously, from going from the opposite direction, if someone, a student is coming in already with mental health concerns, which we see all the time, everything from anxiety, depression, eating disorders, personality disorders, obviously managing that as a college student away from your family on your own is probably gonna affect your sports performance because you just maybe have not had to do that yet at this level. And so um, I think that they can influence each other in different ways. And so just being aware and, again, getting that person in and comfortable to meet with a group like us um, in their department is, is critical. Two more questions. Dr. Okay. Joseph Spears, Associate Professor of Sports Management, Bowie State University. What does a good mental health support team look like on a HBCU campus who doesn't have a sports psychologist? I think tapping into whatever resource you have available. So if you have a counseling center um, or even just a designated person, um, figuring out how they can become a liaison to your athletics department and really then connecting and reaching out to if there are other universities in the city that are doing um, what you're looking for um, to really just figure out how that can work. Um, that is something that for me, and like I said, going back and get my PhD and wanting to do research and presentations around that, that is literally at the heart of what I'm doing right now is to figure out how to create spaces um, and opportunities for schools that don't look like LSU um, to mm -hmm. be able to have those same resources for their students. Um, and then more so at, you know, your um, HBCUs, your Hispanic serving institutions as well. So the first step, I think, is just to figure out what is already available to you and then Figuring out how to get that resource connected to your athletics department in a way that makes the most sense for your student athletes right now. And then the hope is that you then can make a case for creating an area or getting a person hired um, so that you can show that that need is there. Outstanding. Jill Wilson, Athletic Association Communications Director at LSU. How, this is a great one to end up, how and what can those of us who aren't women of color do better at supporting our friends of color, encouraging young ladies of color on our staff, full-time students who don't have anyone that looks like them on our staff? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm proud of her for asking this question. Um, allyship is really important. So there are definitely uh, non-women of color who have been in my life, particularly Dr. Jen Curry, i got to shout her out, who is the reason I went back and got a PhD. And that just was because she encouraged me, even though knowing she does not identify as a black woman, to go after what I wanted as a woman. And so sometimes it's not always about looking like someone. It's about the genuineness in which you approach them um, in order to be able to offer that support. And so for non-women of color, 
um, working in sport, it's really being able to be authentic um, in your support that you're offering and really being able to understand that those same opportunities that you would share with that colleague um, who looks like you because that's your network, figuring out like, hey, let me make sure that I sent this out to, you know, my, my students of color or my staff of color because um, those opportunities often are, we, we get blocked out of them because no one tells us about them. And so just being able to really make sure that that allyship is strong, um, being yourself, and, and really just being authentic. That's an amazing question. <laughs> well, that concludes. And you're talking about, and I want to say thank you for asking them so thoroughly, even from a, uh Amtrak speed uh <laughs> So, yes, we've come to our our time up, and uh, I do want to ask, is it possible that uh, some of your research that you've kind of already done for uh, spaces to create that can't afford to have a um, full-time person, if you could share with me so I can put into the garden so that we can assist more folks uh, who may not have the resources of LSU but, uh, but identify there is a need? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you so much again for joining us in the chat in the garden. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As uh, I just want to say thank you again for Christine Lockley for coming to my rescue and um, recording this and being my engineer for today's show. Um, Join us next Wednesday at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time. For updates on show guests on podcasts, follow us on Facebook's A Chat in the Garden with Monique A.J. Smith. Have a significant rest of the day.